love Christmas around here, and we want to do everything we possibly can to accentuate the moment so that you can worship well. We're going to be uh, continuing our Christmas series today, so turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. The title of the message is Benefits of Advent. Benefits of Advent. Isaiah 9, 1 through 5. Isaiah is prophesying, and he says, But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious, and by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 2, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land the light will shine on them. And you shall multiply the nation, and you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Verse 4. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Lord, help us as we study your word. Four things I'd like to talk to you about. One, gloom is overcome by glory. Two, groping gives way. Groping in darkness gives way to direction. Three, gain is realized. And four, grinding is complete. Background. Isaiah lives between or prophesies, has his ministry going, between about 740 B.C. and somewhere in the early part of the 7th century B.C., 780-something. And Isaiah is a southern kingdom prophet. Now, there were two kingdoms in Israel at this time. Southern kingdom, which had some fairly good kings. Maybe half of them were good. Some were fabulous. The northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, the southern kingdom was known as Judah, the northern kingdom had no good kings. And they started with idolatry. They broke off from the southern kingdom after Solomon's reign and under Rehoboam's reign, who was Solomon's son. And ten tribes went to the north and they established their own kingdom. In order to keep the people from coming to Jerusalem, which happened to be the home for everybody with respect to worship because that's where the temple was, in order to keep their people in in the north from drifting south and maybe now aligning with the southern kingdom, they established their own form of worship with their own gods and departed intentionally from the law of the Lord and from Jehovah. The northern kingdom was a mess. I mean a mess. Now the southern kingdom was not very good, but the northern kingdom was a mess. About 200 years of really bad rule and accentuated idolatry. They had some... Some really good prophets come to him to try to help him. I mean, when you can claim Elijah as your own, and nobody was more accurate in what they said with respect to what prophecy needed to be then in, in that day. Nobody had more power. In fact, not only was it Elijah, but his successor, Elisha, both were targeting the northern kingdom. You're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 years of the most powerful prophetic ministry that has ever been seen on the planet for that period of time. Ever. And it was given to the northern kingdom. Oh, they had opportunity. But they didn't care. They did all they could to 
to try to squash the prophets and silence their voices. Isaiah was a southern kingdom prophet, but he had a heart for the northern kingdom because they were the same blood. They were, they were relatives. It was the same family from Israel. They could claim Abraham as their grandfather. And so he begins to prophesy, and most of his prophecies are for the southern kingdom, but, but now he turns to the north because he's concerned, and the Holy Spirit is inspiring him about what God is going to do with the northern people. And he talks about the northern north of the people. So Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, was somewhere between oh, 30 and 40 miles away from Jerusalem, so a day and a half walk. But the northern part of the northern kingdom was called Galilee area, and that area was about 90 miles north, 70 to 90 miles north of Jerusalem. And the northern kingdom was pretty much occupied by a couple of tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. Dan was up there too, but Dan was so dispersed that you could barely tell that they were a people. And even though the the tribal boundary lines were there, there wasn't much distinction between who Dan was and who Naphtali was and who Zebulun was. And Zebulun and Naphtali happened to be tribes of Israel. Uh, They were individual families. And these individual families, as they came in, named after the 12 sons of Israel came into the promised land under Joshua and had their own demarcations for the promised land. And those tribes then allowed their clans and their families underneath them to take parts of that territory which they were given. Zebulun and Naphtali were up in the north. As as, as Isaiah is prophesying, it's somewhere we think around 730-something. We're not quite sure. But we do know this, that he is speaking to those people in the north because he mentions those two tribes. And he says, something's about to happen to you that's really going to rock your world. And you think you live in darkness now because you haven't been worshiping the Lord? You think it's difficult. But wait till you experience the judgment for the decisions that you made that made you live in darkness. It's going to be harder than you ever thought. And listen to me. So many people are living in in the consequences of their decisions. They've done things wrong. And everything within us, because we're trying to justify ourselves, we're seeking justification, and the only way we, need, the only way we know how to do it outside of God is to justify ourselves. We do our best to try to blame everybody else and everything else for the stuff we've done wrong. Yet we are experiencing the consequences of our own decisions. We are suffering all the, 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 the issues regarding our own misdeeds And we don't want to take responsibility. Why? Primarily because it reconfirms on the inside of us how messed up we are. This is why we're always trying to say, even when we know we're wrong, well, I didn't mean to. It really wasn't my fault. You don't know my background. You don't know what I went through. Trying to justify ourselves constantly because the last thing we want to confirm is we are a wreck. But it's the only way to get right. Because when you understand how messed up you are, then you, then you for the first time understand your need for a Savior. You can't save yourself. And you need help. Naphtali and Zebulun were a part of the northern kingdom and worship had not been a part of their experience. Maybe individual families 
You might find somebody who was the exception, but on mass, no. And so Isaiah begins to prophesy about what's going to happen. Great darkness is coming to you. Gloom is going to come to you. And indeed, the kingdom of Assyria, which is what we would now know as Turkey, was coming down from the south. And ultimately, in 712 B.C., they were going to destroy Samaria, which was the capital city, destroy the entire nation of Israel, and act as if they never existed. They were going to disperse all the people groups to the four corners of the earth. And they began to come down, and the first territories that they occupied were Naphtali and Zebulun, about 723 B.C. And those people experienced the judgment that was about to come to all of Israel. They experienced it first. It was terrible. It was horrible. The Assyrians weren't nice warriors, if you could ever find one. They would, they would do horrible things to the people of Israel. So bad were they that earlier Assyria was, was targeted by a guy named Jonah. And God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, and I want you to talk to them. And I want you to tell them that I'm, I'm going to come and judge them. But Jonah, Jonah went, went the other way. Now, you would think if the kingdom of Assyria wasn't Israel's friend, which they were not, and that God was now telling Jonah to go tell him, I'm going to get him, Jonah would be happy about that. But Jonah realized who God was more than just what he said. Jonah's thing was, well, if you're going to get him, just get him. Why, you, why do you have to tell him? You don't have to tell him, just get him. Because if you tell him, I know you. You'll give them a chance to repent. And then they'll get right. And you'll have mercy on them. And then you won't get them. So I ain't going. I am not going because I know you. I know you. So he went the other direction. That's how mad he was at the Assyrians. That was the entire tenor of all of Israel about them. Because they had done horrible things to the Israelites. Not just normal war and conquest. Horrible things that are unmentionable. And probably Jonah knew some of his relatives who were slain at their hands. He didn't want a thing to do with those people. Now, the sad thing was this. If he had had his heart in it. You see, God always has a plan. And it usually is to benefit you. Not to hurt you. So the Lord knew, if I can get these people right, then they won't come down and beat your people up in about 40 years. So, Jonah, if you really have a right heart, you ought to get some purple books. <laughs> you ought to load up a train, get a charter flight, and once you preach the gospel to these people and tell them I'm coming to judge them or else, they'll repent you can lead all of them to me, and they can become an extension of my goodness. Jonah, if you do that, I've expanded your influence and my kingdom. That's a good... Jonah's heart wasn't in it. The only reason he went to Nineveh, and he did go, was because God spit him up on shore out of a, out of a fish. That's the only reason he was there. Only reason. And he got there and went through the city, and even though God said, tell him I'm, I'm coming, Jonah said it like this. God doesn't like you. 
He going to kill you. He going to kill you. He going to kill you. In 40 days, he going to kill you. That was his attitude. So if you read what God told Jonah to say and what Jonah said, you realize there was some attitude in the middle of it. And he went through three days and preached the gospel, telling him to repent, the Old Testament version of what it meant to find God. Went outside the city, sat, and watched. Didn't go in and disciple. Didn't go in to help. He just sat and watched. The king in Nineveh said, wow, God's going to overthrow him. Okay, okay. I don't know what to do, but this is what we're going to do. Everybody fast and pray. Don't eat or drink anything for three days. Put on sackcloth, which is like an, uh, 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 that, 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 that cloth that you put potatoes in. You know, it, it really rough stuff. What do you call it? Burlap. Yeah, put that on. And nobody eat or drink. He, didn't, he put burlap on the animals, on the cows and the horses, and didn't let them eat or drink for three days. God heard their cry. He relented. Jonah was outside watching because he knew the judgment was coming in 40 days. Stayed out there for a whole month and nothing happened at the end. He said, I knew you. I knew you. He was mad that people got right. This was a messed up prophet. (laughs) Jonah, people got right. They got right. That's the point. They got right. I don't like them. I don't like them. Do you know God likes people you don't? Just FYI, just, yeah. That was Assyria. And they were coming down. And Zebulun and Naphtali were the first ones that they occupied. And it was bad. It was bad. And here in the middle of their worst nightmare, Isaiah is saying, your gloom is about to turn to glory. And this is one of the best ways God can say Merry Christmas. It's a dark world out there. It's dark. What hope do we really have except God? Can you really hope in the economy? Can you hope in your business and put all of your anchors there? Things could turn tomorrow. Interest rates could go through the roof. Somebody could attack somebody and the stock market plummet. In what can you hope in this world? Where is our security? Folks say, I do. Eight years later, they say, I don't. A mother and father come out with great affection for their child. Unparalleled on the planet. They love this one. And by 16, they're saying, God, why me? Why me? What did I do? What did I do to deserve this? Nothing in this world is secure. We can bank on nothing. And if you have banked on things and thought it would work out, you've lived long enough to be disappointed and realize that that it's not what you thought it could be. It's not what you thought it would be. It can be dark out there. It can be gloomy, especially when all of your hopes have been dashed. And there are more people who dwell in gloom as a result of either bad decisions they made or just the tide of the world has overtaken them. This summer, we were at Laguna Beach in California visiting my, my relatives, my sister and, and her, uh, her kids and 
brother-in-law. Had a good time. Laguna Beach is beautiful. But the water's freezing, and they have very high waves, like four or five-foot waves. Now, that's not 30 feet, but when you're standing on the shore, that's a big wave. And, and, and you know, you get the rhythm, and you know, three feet here, two feet there, and you're able to do it. One woman was on her phone. She was facing the shore, not the ocean. And she was out there talking, just enjoying life, thinking all was good. And, all, and we saw it coming. We saw it. And, we, and she turned up. Boom! Phone gone. She's out of her mind. Just what happened? You ever feel like that? You didn't know where it was coming from. This world is a mess. Where do we find our anchor? When life doesn't treat you well, God is watching. And he loves you. And he cares for you. And he wants to bring remedy to a people who had been disobedient, that intentionally departed from his ways that had worshipped other gods that were not gods. He said this, you're experiencing difficulty and I'm bringing it on you from another source because you didn't listen to me. I tried to bring you home, but you would not have me. And so now I've got to let the Assyrians tell you what I've been trying to tell you. And they will treat you ruthlessly, but I want you to know that I'm not going to let you stay there. And you you may be suffering the consequences of your own bad decisions, but God does not want you to stay there. He's bringing hope to you. This is Merry Christmas. He said, I will bring glory to your gloom and a great light will come to you. Though you may be groping in the dark, trying to find your way, I want you to know that all of your groping is going to give way to clear direction. You'll know what you need to do. Anybody walked in the dark for a long period of time? I'm talking about walking. It's hard for you to get up and go to the bathroom. You you know, you you work in it. You you know the the, the outlay of the house and where the coffee table is and where the bedpost is. But you still have to go slow, do you not? And don't try to get up in somebody else's house and go to the bathroom in the the middle of the night. Mm -mm -mm, That's a dangerous thing right there. You'll bump into stuff. Think if there were no illumination at any time and it was not midnight, but it was midday and yet it was still dark to you. Walking around would be hazardous. You would be hurt every fourth step, not knowing what hit you and not knowing what might come next. And when you live like that, walking like that regularly, you now take baby steps unsure of your next accident to the point at which you keep hitting stuff You're making no progress, and you say this, it would be better for me to sit than to walk. You who walk in darkness, you who sit in darkness or dwell in darkness, nobody ever wants to dwell in darkness. You know, up north, way north, Alaska, Arctic Circle, north, My bride loves to watch these people in Alaska shows. (laughs) And so we see them living, and they have periods from November all the way through the beginning of March where it's 22 hours of dark, and they prepare for it. And when it starts, they can't wait for the light to come. It's like they throw a party with everything that might happen because illumination is coming to them. 
Everybody wants it. Nobody chooses to live in darkness. Even if they are living in darkness, they want to get out. And the only reason they're living there is because it's more safe than walking. The only reason they're sedentary is because they've gotten hurt, not knowing what their next step might be and how painful it might be. And God says, though you walk in darkness and though you give it up in your progress and now you're just sitting, I want you to know something. I care about you so much that I'm going to bring illumination to you and I'm going to bring a great light. Now, the only time great is used in the, the, the Hebrew here for light to define it is when God made the sun and the moon. In Genesis chapter 1, he said he, he made two great lights to govern the day and the night. He's not talking about flicking his bick. We're not talking about a flashlight or a little candle. We're talking about huge illumination. That is to give you direction whereby you would never have any confusion about where to go. That's what God wants to give you if you find yourself in darkness. Walking in it. And it's not just you don't know the next step to take. Sometimes that darkness kind of is so dark that it gets in your soul and it becomes depression. You get discouraged every day. Now, most people who are depressed don't let anybody else know until it's too late or until it's unmanageable. They just work through it and you know who you are or you know somebody who is. And I'm not just talking from the experience of having to counsel people through this environment. I'm talking from my own. I did not grow up in the greatest environment. I realize you see me now and people think, did, did you come out of your mama's womb talking in tongues? I mean, did you have a Bible? Did, did you know John 3.16? Because she just kind of said it to you on the inside every day. I knew nothing. And there was nothing about my house that was discipleship oriented. And if you knew the environment in which I grew up where my mother and father loved me dearly, I couldn't have better parents who were more devoted to me. They didn't like one another very much. And it was painful. And I can't even share with you the stuff through which I went. And you wouldn't believe it if I told you. Because who I am now doesn't fit what I was. Meaning that there was a gloom on my life that hung over my head every day. And I had to overcome it on the regular. And the only way I'm able to be who I am now is because God sent his great light. Not just a flashlight. And I accepted Christ Jesus into my life. And was that the ultimate fix for my depression? Yes and no. Meaning salvation didn't fix it. I had to figure out, okay, he's got my soul. I'm going to heaven. That's secure. But how do I live here? Because I still have these memories. And I still got this soul that's damaged. How in the world do I live here? And for 10 years, I got in my Bible every day. By the way. Thank you very much. <laughs> For 10 years, I got in my Bible every day. And I began to realize what he said to me rather than what I had heard in my past. What I had said about myself, what others had said about me, and the circumstances that helped frame my broken soul. I wasn't going to let that any longer define me. I got in this Bible, and I realized he loved me. And he has a plan for my life. He's got goodness for me. And I began to, to let that seep into my heart intentionally, plant good seeds. And all of a sudden, when I began to see dark clouds appear on my horizon, I said, not today. <sighs> not today. I know what my God has for me. 
I know, and it wasn't mind over matter. We're not talking about willpower here. We're talking about fighting with his promises. And I don't struggle with it anymore. I know that's not a clinical solution. I know it. And I can't say that I was clinically diagnosed as one who was depressed. But I can say this, that it felt like it. And it doesn't anymore. And it wasn't a quick fix. It wasn't something that, that was, was an antidote immediately that lasted. It has been a continual sowing of his word into my... Because the world is going the wrong way. It tells me every day I'm nothing. It says you haven't done enough yet. It says you'll never be good enough yet. That's what the world says all the time. I mean, I, just a little transparency here. I'm surprised you want to come and hear anything I got to say. I look at myself in the mirror. I say, I know you. <laughs> I know you. I know your, I know all your flaws. I know all your weaknesses. I know your tendencies. I know your thoughts. I know what you want to say and don't say. <laughs> I know you. It's amazing that God can do anything through you. He turned my gloom into glory. He gave me a big, great light. And I decided to stay and bask in the warmth of the sun. S-O-N and S-U-N. Leads to the next point. There's, There's gain that's realized. He said, they will be glad as a result of this illumination. They will be glad as with the gladness that comes from your presence. These people were so depressed, they thought nothing would ever happen to them good again. And what did God do but target that his son would make that region his home? Nobody got to experience the person of Christ longer than the region that is occupied by Zebulun and Naphtali. Jesus lived there for 32 years, 31 years. Born in Bethlehem. Had to get out of Dodge because the, 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 um, the angel came to Joseph at night. Jesus was a little, about, a little over two years old. The angel came to him and said, listen, Herod's coming to kill the boy. You need to get out go to Egypt. I'll keep him safe down there and you'll, you'll be set. Well, you talk about wrecking a guy's life. I mean, his life was blessed, but it was wrecked. He was a carpenter meeting Joseph in Galilee. He had to go down to, to Bethlehem to register while his wife was about to give birth. They had a baby in Bethlehem, so he couldn't travel back all the way. Bethlehem is near Judah, near, near Jerusalem. Had to go back, couldn't go back to, to Nazareth because had, she had a newborn. So he had to, to make a new business there in Bethlehem where I'm sure there were really good carpenters already. But he had to fashion out a new business. He gets going in two years. God says, time to move. But I just... Yeah, they're about to kill the boy, so you got to go to Egypt. I don't have a green card. <laughs> I go to Egypt. That's another car. That's, I, don't, I, 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 I don't even have a visa. What? what uh? Get up and go now. In the middle of the night, he said, get up now and go. He goes down to Egypt. And, you know, a man is thinking, how am I going to provide for my family? <laughs> well, just about a couple of months earlier, um, there have been these guys that showed up in Bethlehem, wise men. And uh, they came to, to see this, this child who had been announced by stars. 
Your birth was important. But it wasn't announced by a star. <laughs> yeah. These wise men came from the east trying to find this one who was born in Judah that was king, that was so monarchical and so important that God decided to announce him with a new star. And generally, when you come to a king, you better come with something. You don't come empty-handed. You come presenting a gift. And generally, that gift has to be in proportion to the size and influence of his reign, his rule, and his kingdom. So how long he's been reigning, how well he rules, and the impact of his kingdom. You better bring a gift, and it better, it better signify how important you think he is. Queen of Sheba, during Solomon's reign, brought 100 talents of gold. So a talent was not a gift. It was a unit of measure, and it was 100 pounds. So she brought 100, 100 pounds of gold. That's 10,000 pounds of gold. That's just to say, hey. That was just to say hello. Just hello. Gold's about $1,300 an ounce today. And it doesn't have near as much importance for us as it did for them because they base their entire economy on it. We, it's a precious metal, but we don't even value our dollar against it. So it's just kind of there. It's, it's leveraged by the markets, not by our need. It was much more important to them, so it was much more valuable. If it were just valued on the basis of our valuations, she came and brought him $13 million just to say, hey, what do you do? It, Solomon was important, but he wasn't announced by a star. What do you do when a king is announced by a star? What kind of gift do you bring? We think these wise men didn't just come to worship. They came to give Said so they had gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Could have been upwards of $10 million. They unloaded on Joseph and Mary. I think I can go to Egypt. Not a problem. Not a problem. All good. All good. No work permit. He just sat on the beaches of Alexandria and enjoyed life. Until God said, Herod is dead. The one who is seeking the child's life is gone. Go back now. Go back home. And so then they went back to Nazareth after two years of there. So Jesus was about four years old. When he goes back to Nazareth, they establish a home there. And he lives out all of his child years, teenage years, adult years in Nazareth. And even his ministry years, most of them were done there in Nazareth because that was his home. The land of Naphtali and Zebulun got the benefit of the greatest light that had ever been born. Everything that Isaiah said came to pass. And God has given you the benefit of the greatest light that has ever been born. And that light is to give you great gain. But the more you stay in his presence, the greater gain you get. They will have gladness as with the gladness that comes from his presence. And let me tell you what that's going to feel like, Isaiah says. It's going to be like when people go to the harvest and it's amazing the crop they got. It's a bumper crop. Or when men divide the spoil from victory. There are no more happy people than those who have a harvest that rewards them for the prior four months 
of, of sowing and, 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 and beginning to weed and care for the garden. No happier people, especially when your entire livelihood depends on it. If you are an agrarian man, a farmer, oh, harvest is what you live for. It's not the sowing, it's the reaping. And when a man divides the spoil after battle, that means he won. Not a happy day when you lose. He won. Gladness will be like that. But you got to stay in his presence. You got to stay in this word. When you stay in his presence, even though your circumstances might not change, your perspective does. Because he's God all by himself. And he is well able to take care of all the things that, that, are, that, are, that are going contrary to your will. And though everything may be going in the wrong direction, it seems like a mountain you will never be able to scale and might just fall on top of you. When you get in his presence, all of a sudden you realize, oh, you are big. You are marvelous. You are magnanimous. You care about me. You've written these scriptures as my love letter, as something that helps me understand your good plan for my life. I believe that somehow or another, even though today doesn't feel good, tomorrow will be better. And even if I face tomorrow and it is not better, I will be better in it. I believe you, my God. You've got good in store for me. If only that good is me being better, formed more into your image, giving you more glory. I choose to be glad in your presence. Glad. You remember the, the Sermon on the Mount? Nine passages there that Jesus starts with. And all these nine phrases start with one word. Anybody remember what they are? Blessed. Blessed. Blessed are you, blessed are you when men insult you. I redefine blessed. You know, I look at it a little different. I'm not thinking to people when they slander me and say bad things about me. That I, I don't feel very blessed when that happens, God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say all kind of evil against you. For your reward is great in the kingdom of heaven. Listen, when people persecute you, this is what you need to do. You need to have an ear. One that listens to them because you need to know how to respond appropriately. The other that listens to heaven. So when they're saying bad things, you need to hear the cash register. Cha-ching. <laughs> your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great. Blessed. Why? Not because the circumstances here have changed, but your perspective has changed. You understand how God looks at it, how he thinks about you. Say it again. Say it again. Cha-ching. One more time. Cha-ching. 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 No, I'm not asking you to say it. I'm, I, <laughs> say the bad thing. I'm, I, it's, I, I, it, it doesn't work. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Don't have time. Gladness in his presence because your perspective has changed. And then lastly, grinding is complete. Now, the word here he says he's going to break the yoke of the oppressor off your life. And he who has treated you poorly, as in the days of Midian when Gideon won. Gideon was a judge and Midian was defeated completely. And they were the group of people that were constantly on the neck of Israel in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. And Gideon waged a war in which he didn't have to lift a sword. Didn't have to do anything except break a pot and blow a trumpet. It's all he had to do with 300 men. And God brought about victory for him. It's a great story. Read it. Gideon was a very insecure man, fearful, 
didn't know God could use him, didn't think he was much of anything, he was you. He was you all day long. And God did amazing things through him. And the Lord says this, I'm going to break the yoke. Now, the word break there is also in the Hebrew the word for pulverize. It doesn't mean he's just going to break it in half. It means he's going to destroy that thing that has been on you, that has kept you enslaved, put you in in the the kind of environment whereby you felt oppressed constantly. I'm going to take that thing. I'm not only break it, but there is not going to be the remnant of what a yoke looked like. That's how I'm going to. I'm going to grind it into dust. This is Merry Christmas. God wants to deliver like that. O Zebulun and Naphtali, he wants to deliver like that. You who are oppressed, you who feel downtrodden, you who feel gloomy and like life is never going to be what you want it to be, hear me, the sun rises in your life. He has come to you. Receive his benefit. Stay in his presence. Figure out what gladness feels like even when life is not treating you the way you want and watch him break stuff over your life and make you somebody that nobody ever looks at and think, oh, you went through stuff? Your life is so great, they will never know that fire touched your life. Let's pray.